Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hi, this is Till Luca. When I was looking for a publisher for a book that I wanted to write, I was lucky enough to have had two offers, one from a huge international media company and the other from Handspring Publisher, a small group in Scotland run by four great people. And I'm glad I chose them, Handspring, because not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share, the Advanced Myofascial Technique series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional-level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement and touch to help patients achieve wellness. They have a new instructional webinar series, Move to Learn, 45-minute segments. I am teaching one of them, in fact. Head on over to their website, handspringpublishing.com, to check those out, have a look at their catalog, and be sure to use the discount code TTP, the Thinking Practitioner, when you check out. Thanks, Handspring. I am happy to be here with you today, Gil Headley. You and I met uh, a long time ago when you came to the Rolf Institute, I believe. 1991. 1991. I'm glad you remember the year. That's, yep. that's long enough for me not to even remember. And you, uh, you know, you took the time to talk to me today. I got a few things I wanted to ask you about and talk to you about, so I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. But you had uh, quite a academic background even when I met you. you know, I was, yeah, I was... I was in a PhD program in 1991 that I completed in 94 or 93, I think. Okay. So your, your training at the Roth Institute was concurrent with finishing your PhD. Exactly. And that was, was that, do I remember that as theological ethics? Exactly. Wow. You are a rare soul who can even say theological ethics. No, (laughs) I remember it, but yes, I, I trained in theological ethics with the, wonderful man who kind of founded that field and um, retired while I was in my program and was followed up with a wonderful protege who became my dissertation advisor. Well, I mean, tell me, tell me more about yourself and especially like connecting the dots from that into the Rolfing into what you're doing now. Mm -hmm. Well, I I always I was one of those fraught Catholics who wanted to know what should I do with my life and uh and should should being in all capital letters that's pretty much how I lived and so it was natural that I would as an intellectual become an ethicist or people who spend their entire lives thinking about what people should do or what they think they think they should do and and um, so ethics at the University of Chicago is kind of a meta field where you study moral systems and try and understand people's reasoning and how they come to believe what they should do is what they should do. So I spent a good eight or nine years doing that. And uh, and part of that, uh, well, while I was studying ethics, well, all of my friends sort of cross-trained and um, but nobody cross-trained in body work or <laughs> massage or rolfing or or anatomy or anything like that um and that seemed to be my way into the the our way of being in the world struck me as a very physical one and that it seemed preposterous that academics would 
offer prescriptions about behavior uh, about for people who live in bodies and know nothing about the body or what its import might be for understanding how we live in the world or our way of being in the world, which is a summary catchphrase for the moral life. So I felt that the body had a whole lot to do with the moral life and, and that I, I ought to know something about it. And um, I ought to actually be in one because most of us at University of Chicago lived somewhere about two feet over our bodies and didn't even enter it. Uh, you know, we watched ourselves drink coffee. We didn't actually feel the coffee going in. Um, and so, you know, for me, I started doing Tai Chi and then, and then learned acupressure and, and that was neat and found out that I had pretty good hands. And then my mom got rolfed and I heard about rolfing and thought, wow, that's amazing. So I studied Ida Rolf a little bit on my own and saw that she was a healer and an educator. And I love that combination of, of talents, you know, or of, or vocation is the way I would have put it at the time that to be a healer and an educator struck me as kind of like, you know, what Jesus was a healer and an educator. I was like, wow, Jesus and Ida Rolf, me too. You know, so I, I, uh, so I, I, I went to the Rolf Institute from as a purely intellectual interest. And then they were like, oh, you need to get Rolf to become a Rolfer. I was like, what? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I found a Rolfer, Alan Davidson in Chicago, who had been trained by Ida Rolf and, and uh, had a good experience. And, and uh, the rest is history there. Well, the history took you to, I mean, I think most people know, associate you now with dissections and with fascia. Mm -hmm. So how did those things appear well, on the horizon? Well, as I was a novice rolfer, I soon realized that I, I didn't know much at all about the body still, even for my little rolfing training, which was wonderful and impactful and sparked a lot of ideas, but it, I didn't really know my way around the body very well, and especially viscera and all that business. And I, so I thought I got to do some dissection. And I had already done a little dissection at University of Chicago with a friend who was at the University of uh, Illinois in a medical program. And I would go into the lab with him. Since I had been trained in massage and was training in rolfing, he thought that was a good asset while well, he studied for his uh, his Monday morning test. We'd go in on Saturdays and dissect and and uh, it was very impactful. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. I got to do some more of that. You know, once I started practicing. So I just made some phone calls. I was Dr. Headley at that point, And I could say, hello, this is Dr. Headley from the International Ralph Institute Anatomy Faculty, which I wasn't, but I was calling for them. <laughs> and and I said, we need to do a research project and we hire a laboratory and whatever. I was like, come to my office. <laughs> so we met and made fast friends immediately. He was a wonderful man from Harlem who'd been embalming for 25 years at that point or 30 years or something. And we hit it off, uh, Roger Faison, and he became kind of my mentor in, in all things laboratory and, uh, and a, a, a wonderful friend until his passing. And so, you know, he, he opened the door for me and then I opened the door for everybody else, basically. Uh, you know, our first dissection, there was, I did two weeks with one body and I did face up with four guys for the first week. And then I brought the next team in and for 
four days. We first peeked at what we did on the front and flipped it over and worked on the back. It was horrifying. I mean, it was, it was a massacre. It was like, it was like something from the great plains in 1825 after, after an attack on a convoy or something. And, uh, and so, um, the next year I thought I'm going to book this again, but it's got to be done differently. And, and after a series of nightmares (laughs) and, and mental breakdowns, I, I finally came up with, uh, doing it in layers, which was the cue was from my, from my, uh, you know, uh, FOB training with you and, and, and Tom and, uh, and, uh, Aline Newton and whoever else was there. <laughs> and, Aline uh, Newton, yeah. And Tom yeah. Myers, Tom, the foundation, foundations of bodywork in the Rolf Institute was, yeah, that's where you met. Yeah. That was the pre-training for Rolfers at the time who had yeah. no experience in touching. And so I had no experience other than my Tai Chi. So, Anyway, uh, yeah, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, we got back to 1991. And back I, to yeah, I, you made an impression as a student there. And oh, the layers. Were, I just got it. Yes. Layers, layers, yeah. <clears throat> so we had done this psychometric exercise <clears throat> in, the, in, that, in that class where Tom sort of said, you know, okay, uh, the person on the table, go somewhere in your body, pick a layer. And someone would be like, I'm going to my deep fascia secretly. And then the person touching them would have to be like, play, hunt, hunt the client and find them energetically in the body. And I was astounded at how, how somehow that information was conveyed. I can't say how, uh, whatever psychometric cueing was involved, but it, 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 I was like, whoa, we have the, we have layers in our bodies and they feel like something and their textures and and we actually live there and we can move around in them uh within and by touch and that that made a huge impression on me that exercise and it and and so that was the framework that i thought let me dissect that way what what because if that's how we are then it has nothing to do with regions it has to do with textures and so why don't we dissect by texture rather than by region like it says in this uh, Grant's Atlas I have on my lap here that I'm trying to imitate. And so I was like tossing the, basically wanting to toss the medical uh, paradigm of anatomy to the side for a minute, not to dispose of it, but put it aside for a minute and see what happens if we take our Rolfers paradigm of a, of a body built in textural layers and, and dissect that way and, and see what happens. And what happened was it was amazing. <laughs> and extremely instructive. And the few of us who kind of uh, test drove that system were profoundly impressed to just lay eyes upon that big yellow layer. Like, whoa, where was that? How come that's not in the book? And I, we all knew we touched it. And, and to see it, to see what we touched was very profound. And so just kept on refining that process for the last 26 years until it's gotten pretty refined. And you're you're making me realize that layering analogy is really deep in uh, in that tradition of that lineage. I still use it now in my hands-on work and in my teaching and in my thinking. I know well, you've done I, with the yeah. onion metaphor, things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah, the onion tree. And I have been I get called out by <clears throat> some people uh, who are, who object to the very word layers and get all their panties in a bunch the second they hear the word layers as if it immediately excludes the possibility of connection and relationship. Uh, but oh, is, I, that, is that the objection? 
That seems to be it, which is a funny thing to accuse me of since I've spent my entire career, you know, you know, introducing people to the connections and relationships to the body is kind of a point of integral anatomy. But um, I think that I'm not, you know, they say, well, it's not true. The architecture, they'll use the word architecture a lot, of the body is is this, you know, endless web kind of uh, metaphor. See. And I'm like, well, I'm not denying that, but that doesn't change the fact that, that tissues differentiate into textural yeah. textural layers. And that's true at the cellular level. Um, if you don't believe in layers, you can't believe in cell biology because there are lipid layers and there. You know, so, so I, I find it funny that people have a problem with it. And, uh, and it really, and I've even changed the way I draw my onion tree model. Cause I used to just have a very simplistic drawing of, of an onion and then tree branches going through it actually made it visually like a photo layover of a tree passing through an onion just to evoke the sense of our our vascular our neurovasculature fractal branching that also is working its way through what are apparently uh, very clear textural layers that feel differently to the hand that move over one another relative to each other. Um, I don't deny the unity of Gaia when I look at the strata of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> I don't deny the unity of the human body when I look at the textural layers into which. Uh, embryos differentiate. It's just a, yeah. it's just a yeah. reality. Whole or part. You're talking about almost like though the tyranny of holism, how we get to the place <laughs> where we can't see the parts for the whole you know, the other way around. <laughs> that's beautiful. That's a great, that is exactly, that's a beautiful, uh, that's it. The, the tyranny of holism. I love it. That's yeah. wonderful. Okay. So you, you catch some flack for saying that there are layers that were not all one. Uh, you've caught some flack well, the other way too. We're not all one. I'd say that I'd say uh-huh. that there are differences within the unity. And if this is like the most political thing I can say, <laughs> like in, in other words, is that whether it's the body or the or the world, we are apt to perceive differences, and our our aptitude for perceiving difference does not subjugate or deny the reality of our unity it simply perceives the the textures of the whole cloth and and the and the different threads that make the weave it doesn't it doesn't separate them the the unity is not subsumed or denied by the perception of difference and i think that that that's uh, an important thing to remember i i am very tempted to step into that rabbit hole but I'm going to step around it because I'm remembering uh, visiting you in Paonia. And oh. This must have been, yeah, this must have been late '80s, perhaps, no, or maybe no. early 2000s. Was it? Of, yeah, early 2000s. Okay. It was around. We, we had kids too, maybe. Yeah, little okay, kids. Good. Little and kids. you were uh, excited about your fuzz speech. <laughs> you said, "I just this is the this is great. I just record. I got it. I recorded the fuzz speech. You got to see it, Till." Yeah, so now, I was so excited because I never had to say it again. <laughs> <laughs> you got it down and never say it again. So you talked about catching flack from, say, the, the tyranny of holism. You caught some flack from the other side of the question. Uh, is it would you? Was that fair to say about in terms of the fuzz speech? Um, you know what I'm referring to? Um, I've gotten all kinds of flack all through my life. <laughs> but I don't know why I catch so much flack. I'm not that controversial. Um, but the fuzz, yeah, the fuzz speech, some people went, yeah, people got mad at me about the fuzz speech. 
saying I didn't know anatomy and I was making it up that that stuff is fake, that it grows there in cadavers. I got the weirdest comments. <laughs> um, well, you, yeah, let's, I think if you're okay with it, let's go ahead and just, I'm going to play a little bit. Of the fuzz speech? Oh, I yeah. can unpack that baby for you. <laughs> the fuzz yields to my fingertip. Sometimes I come across a stronger, thicker strand. It doesn't yield to my fingertip. That represents older fuzz sometimes, or maybe it represents a nerve. But each night when you go to sleep, the interfaces between your muscles grow fuzz, potentially. And in the morning when you wake up and you stretch, the fuzz melts. We melt the fuzz. That stiff feeling you have is the solidifying of your tissues. The sliding surfaces aren't sliding anymore. There's fuzz growing in between them. You need to stretch. Every cat in the world gets up in the morning and it stretches its body and it melts the fuzz in the same way that the fuzz melted when I passed my finger through it. When you're moving, it's as if you're passing your finger through the fuzz, just like I did on the cadaver form here. He's heading the fuzz speech. Basically, you get your fingers between the layers. Yeah. And that that's what happens while we sleep, perhaps. You were careful okay, to say so, perhaps. Yeah. Her, here's the thing. Um, I was, after 10 years, when I finally recorded the fuzz speech, after 10 years of playing with that tissue, I knew it belonged there. But when I first, when I first encountered it, I did not know that it belonged there. Say what you mean by it belonged there. That, that, that cotton candy that I was demonstrating between, say, uh, one muscle fascicula and another. Yes. Um, I wasn't so sure it belonged there. We had been in our training and the body was represented uh, anatomically in images without any demonstration of, of what I was looking at. In other words, yeah. the muscles were presented as discrete. Clean red structures. Clean red structures, uh, uh, pristine, with nothing connecting them, really. And we spoke a lot in our rolfing training about differentiating tissues uh, that were stuck to each other. Mm -hmm. And so that was the, when I first saw that matter, that fuzzy white matter between things that were, in my mind, supposed to be discrete and that should be sliding along one another like silk stockings. My idea of silk stockings were that silk stockings are also discrete and would slide over one another and that they aren't con connected by cotton candy. This is either uh, off analogy, sliding exactly. silk exactly. stockings. So seeing, so taking those analogies, those images, those that language of, of differentiation to the table and, and seeing that I could actually create discrete things just with the touch of my hand, I thought that must be what I'm doing as a rolfer. How cool. You know, I'm rolfing the cadaver. How cool. Uh, how pretty it looks when it's all independent. How cool is that? And so when I first started doing dissection, that was the mode I was in. Differentiate the cadaver the way I differentiate my clients with my fingertips and how marvelous, how wonderful, how look at how I'm demonstrating um, this thing in practice. Um, what I came to understand over the course of the 10 years that it took me to record that fuzz speech um, 
was that, oh, this tissue, this is a tissue, it's ubiquitous, it belongs there, it's what relates the tissues to each other, it's not a mistake. Um, but I also went in initially, there's more, with the idea of hydrogen bonding and cross-linking of, of, of fibers that happens, and, and Tom had talked about this in, in our pre-training and in our training. That's what we all learned is the mechanism, right? Yeah, we learned we learned that that that's how things get <clears throat> stuck to each other, and so mm-hmm. keep on moving. So the fuzz speech is this weird amalgam of the echoes of my early confusion with my growing awareness that it belonged there. And so I said in the video, "Melt the fuzz," and the idea wasn't to obliterated or to dissect human bodies uh, with your hands, but to restore the fluidity uh, and and uh, slipperiness of the tissues. But I've, I've, I illustrated it, and this is the worst part. <laughs> I illustrated it with, well, with first images of me obliterating it by hand. And pushing, pushing your hand between the layers and breaking apart those cross-linkings, yeah. Making it apart. But we're going to keep keep put quick cross-linkings in a little parentheses over here because I want to talk more about that. Um, and the other the other images that I supplied were of Mr. Agape, my, my all-time wonderful cadaver star of the Integral Anatomy series. Uh, Got to love that guy. And, and I showed one shoulder... Uh, pre-dissected and looking very whitish and fuzzy and fashy. And then the other side was dissected and it was like this winged scapula flying in the air with no relationship between the, the, the scapula and the rib cage as if that were somehow, you know, an ideal. And I used that imagery because for one, I didn't think his scapulas were kind of stuck. <laughs> uh, more than your average scapula. I was like, I don't know if this dude lifted his arms very often. Uh, and and also it was the only imagery I had at the time, you know, uh, to somehow demonstrate the concept of of it. And, and it was very powerful imagery, but it was just intensely misleading uh, <laughs> because it gave the impression that the ideal was that there be no connection between the tissues. Uh, and instead of, instead of that, they, that the tissues that are there always be, be fluid and, and, uh, and slippery. And so when I went back over the fuzz speech for my fuzz tour, I figured let's just run with what people love. So I did the fuzz tour in 2017, but the object of it amidst just spreading a message of unity and joy. Uh, the object of it was also to spend four hours dismantling my own fuzz speech because it takes literally that long to explain what's right and what's wrong with it. I see. Yeah, sure. Well, hey, I, I mean, I, you have almost, you're coming up to a million views on that. Mm. People still send me that link and says, Till, I know you're into like bodies and stuff. <laughs> Did you know Lord. that fascia does this? I mean, I oh, still God. get that link from people. I go, uh, <laughs> thank you, Gil, for being uh, brave enough to go where angels feared to tread <laughs> and put out some stuff that, yeah, that has been uh, revered and pilloried and in some ways was part of the uh, furor that we're still sorting out. 
what role yeah. does do adhesions play? What are the actual effect mechanical effects we have with our hands? Exactly. How about slipperiness? Does that where does that get in the picture? Well, exactly. And that's what the thing is, the more I drill down on that friggin' thing in 46 cities of lectures <laughs> in the course of that one year, the writer it got. I was like, damn, the only thing that's really wrong with this stupid frigging fuzz speech is the imagery that I supplied. Um, it's actually pretty accurate if you listen to it um, in terms of the mechanics of things. We really do get gummy in our sleep. We really can restore slipperiness through movement. Uh, and, and no, we shouldn't dissect our bodies and it won't be dissected by our touch because it doesn't have the same properties as an embalmed body. Uh, and what I was really doing in those images was basically busting a membrane system with my hand. And you can, when you place it in tension, take the fibers out of their normal organization and then break them up. I was dissecting the body. But if you touch a person that in a, in a wet system and lean into those membranes, you actually are, uh, uh, ca causing, introducing effects that that the response of which is shifts in hydration, movement of chemistry, restoration of slipperiness, uh, and and prevention of moving on to crystallization beyond gumminess when you become literally have brittle tissue that can snap when you step off a sidewalk. The first part of what you said, I think there, I don't consensus is way too strong a word. But I think there's less disagreement about the first part of what you said, that we can, through our touch, increase hydration, probably, but we certainly increase glide and mobility. Mm -hmm, exactly. The model has shifted between getting in there and ripping apart the fuzz yeah. and more toward increasing the fluid qualities of what's happening there. Exactly, exactly. And, and I, think, I think that, you know, 70s Rolfing was pretty rippy. <laughs> and and we were taught i was taught by 70s rolfers right so yeah. um and, and yet i didn't even have the physical strength to do the rippy thing i mean literally i thought that rolfing and was told that rolfing was the therapy that they take your muscles off the bones with and that's pretty much what it felt like uh, yeah i remember that's funny i've i first heard of rolfing in the seventies too. And it was, somebody says, Hey, yeah, that's where they dig down between the first layer of muscles to the deepest layers of muscles, tear those apart and get to your bone. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, wow. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, Whoa, that was some negative branding I had to overcome when I started <laughs> rolling in the nineties. And I was like, damn, everyone thinks I'm going to maul them and I'm not mauling them. So they're disappointed. Yes. Um, well, okay. So thank you for being willing to go where angels feared to, by the way, and for your fuzz reconsidered and for keeping the, the conversation alive. Another place, though, that I've always uh, uh, respected, I think, is that your willingness to bring sexuality into your dissection room and into yeah. your teaching. Would you agree, by the way? Um, I, I do consider myself to be a sex educator, uh, yeah. for sure. Um, and I also hope that people show up with their whole person in intact and, and, and don't feel that they have to like only be a certain way in a room. So I always invite, uh, in other words, I spent my entire first part of my life cutting out my sexuality from my the rest of my person as a devout Catholic thinking I was supposed to be a priest 
and div- I divided myself pretty severely. And so on this, in the second half of my life, there's little that will provoke me to divide myself in that way again. And I, I like to be a whole person and I like to respect people as whole persons. And I also like to demonstrate the continuity of everything. Your skin on your hand goes right over your crotch, right? So there's no, <laughs> there's no, there's no region there. It's continuous. And so I, I do feel uh, the dissection lab is an incredible opportunity to, to do sex ed. Um, and so I do a lot of that. You do sex ed, you do sex reframing. You reframe it in technical terms, I think, but is there more? Um, yeah, for me, it, you, it, it's when you recognize that sex is just life force and you channel it through, you can channel it through your voice, you can channel it through, through your whole being. It, it, call it sex, call it life force, call it anything. But to say that there, there's really nothing, I can't believe that the gift of the body comes with like caveats. <laughs> it's like, oh, but that's dirty or that doesn't belong there. And so to my mind, to be a whole person, to interact with other people in a vital way, um, energy's got to move. I'm, I mean, I, I've read a lot of Wilhelm Reich, you know, I, I think uh, I think uh, he made a few good points there uh, about uh, the armoring of the person. And I realized that in my in my rolfing practice and my massage practice, that when you when you facilitate someone's movement and sort of the decompensation uh, of, of their lifestyle and offer them an opportunity to move more fully in their whole body, their sex life is going to change too. Their, their, their sexuality, their vitality, the way that they move through space is going to change. And that's disruptive. It's actually culturally disruptive to move outside the box of the social frameworks of the family or the church or the society uh, that we're placed in. And so I do find that, that, uh, that an experience of the whole person is, is, um, provocative, socially disruptive. It doesn't have to be overtly seductive, which is different. It's what, see, this is the thing that in our culture, any movement towards pleasure uh, and away from pain, which is actually the, the virtuous side of the polarity in our culture, any movement towards pleasure is instantly labeled hedonism and seductive and all of that. And I would say that's not... That's not true, actually. Um, it's actually stepping into the vitality of our of our human gift um, isn't seductive at all. It's just human, and it, and and the perception of seductive hedonism from any movement towards vital vitality and pleasure is is the legacy of a Puritan uh, culture and a very controlling culture around the body and sexuality even. And it's actually the very culture that produces a porn culture, because if it weren't for friggin', you know, um, um, uptight Victorian and Puritan um, notions about sexuality in the body, we wouldn't have a porn culture uh, because instead we would just have people interacting as human beings with their life force intact and they wouldn't need to desperately reach out to uh, other other forms that access that part of themselves although in a taboo uh, quote taboo format it's hard to call it taboo when every kid has it on their telephone well and there's such a fraught area 
in our field, not just culturally and historically, but in our field as body workers, uh, you know, the, 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 the wounding, the vulnerabilities, the baggage all of, of culture and gender and sex and all that is right there with us in the room as well. That, that's right. Yeah. And the, and the wounds are deep. And they're unconsciously, uh, we, we live unconsciously uh, with respect to those deep wounds. Um, and, and we live at the effect of them and they shape our lives in, in, a, in a profound and, and often distorting ways. I mean, I, I've had guys say, well, I'm so glad I was circumcised as, as a baby because that would have really hurt. I wouldn't want to have that happen now. I'm like, dude, you endured that hurt. That was you on the table, strapped down and cut by a unfeeling, <laughs> partially trained practitioner who, who also was not feeling themselves. And you were taught not to feel on that day and, and subsequent days to it. And that, that, that feeling was discounted. And basically a zombie produced another zombie. That's like the, right? A one mm-hmm. unfeeling person produced another unfeeling person. And if there's some person who is in the habit of doing circumcision in a hospital, I, I ask you, please go to a, go to a therapist and think about what you're doing, <laughs> please, because it's, it's a brutal act and we, and we do it in, in secret in hospital rooms, apart from the loving parents who birthed that child and that who spent its nine months in a womb to come out to meet a knife. Well, you, you were kind enough to invite me into your recent online class and I was there for the, the, uh, what did you call it? What was your Latin term? Oh, pars, pars intima. Yeah. For the guy's penis. Yeah, and uh, you very you know respectfully but very clearly were educating as you who who would know that the guy with the scalpel in the dissection would be giving us an education about the penis and its intactness on the table, mm. and uh, I it, it made me squirm. I got to say, but it was fascinating, and I learned a bunch of stuff. As well. Oh, wonderful, wonderful! Yeah, I I wrote I've written a forty page chapter on circumcision and all i've realized in the months since i wrote it is that it's too short <laughs> and, that, and that i have another another 10 or 20 pages to add on the emotional component which i failed to articulate to the extent that i feel is important okay so here's i mean this is that makes me think a little bit about what i'm after uh i i haven't done the dissection thing much i've been in several but i haven't um, taking the lead on leading them or, you know, even being actively involved in them because they make me squirm so much because they're difficult for me to be around. And I also think of what I'm doing as even more focused on the non-physical mm. in my work. I'm, I'm fascinated by the physical. I have a background as a mechanic, mm. you know, and I'm taught, I love anatomy and my teaching is anatomical, anatomically based, but I've, I think my bias is saying that the, what really counts is what happens beyond the physical, that that's the living thing that happens for people. 
Absolutely. And and I, I, I completely agree. And for me, the cadaver is just just a like a a box to stand on uh for that experience of the of the living. Yeah. Um and I squirmed a lot too till I, I was I was terrified to go to my own class for years. At the very prospect of having to go in there and do that again just put me into into like PTSD nightmare state for months before my own classes. And it, I, the, my, what I do now stands on the shoulders of, of a lot of really hard work moving through my own disgust, horror, terror, fear, uh, fear and loathing for my body, you know, uh, for the human body. I, I didn't go in loving it. I went in dissociated. And, and then when I associated, the associations were terrifying. And then I had to move through that until I could have loving associations, associations of appreciation, associations of wonder or curiosity or the impulse to, to know more. Yeah. It's like, no, no, but thank you for that too. And the way that you approach that in the, in your lab and your teaching has always been very sensitive to that. Mm. Even, even reverent. You, uh, you, I remember you, several conversations i remember you telling me that you love a good conspiracy mm. you know? or i even think of you as a conspiracy connoisseur <laughs> are you familiar at all with say michael Shermer's concept of patternicity patternicity no. he's got an interesting <laughs> idea that we uh humans biologically are programmed to see pattern in the world around us mm-hmm and that our ability to see like connections between things and patterns of those connections is related to our ability to detect menace or to project meaning, mm. feel me a sense of meaning. Mm-hmm. The connections that we see through that pattern recognition process are what give us either menace or meaning. Mm. That's really cool. I, I, I'm, that's like, it's like when the first time I saw my horoscope and I was totally pegged, you know, I was like, wow, that's, that's me to a T. And I, I have to say, you got me there. <laughs> I see patterns everywhere and a lot of them are menacing and some of them give me a sense of meaning. Uh, but also I do think that a good conspiracy theory uh, has some evidence uh, and and that we wouldn't have conspiracy laws on the books if there weren't conspiracies. And what's been what amazes me is how, it, and this is a good conspiracy, is is how the propaganda machine has turned the very word conspiracy or conspiracy theorist into a dirty word and a, a, a means of dismissing and trivializing someone's perception of patterns for which there's actually evidence, which uh, which evidence is being is being subsumed to uh, to meanings uh, uh, alternate to what I would consider um, a positive intent. Well, I mean, your role has been to look for those connections or patterns or hidden meanings even in the body. And then your gift has been to bring those out. But I'm just thinking there's got to be some vulnerability in that for you, like the fuzz speech viewer or whatever. I mean, did people... Uh, is there is there do people dismiss what you say is crazy are there patterns that are obvious to you but not to other people um not not much i mean the 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 few the 
really my haters are fewer in number than my <laughs> than my lovers and uh and the haters you know having studied psychodynamics for a number of years you know i don't see in those haters a whole lot of um capacity for meaningful rational conversation it's more just i'm hating you from a gut reaction because it serves my psychodynamic defense structure somehow and i can forgive those people i mean not everybody not everybody does the work to realize why they react the way they do uh, even if a person is completely wrong in other words you know doesn't so someone's wrong like what's the big deal like in other words why does that provoke an intense reaction that's the question it's not about whether you're right or wrong it's about whether whether you well, can you still breathe <laughs> knowing that someone else is wrong? Like, I don't mind people being wrong about certain things, like whatever, I've been wrong about all kinds of things. And then you learn something and then you're, but to divide the world into right and wrong itself is a function of a kind of psychodynamic structure, right? It's the classic psychopathy that perceives everything as right or wrong. Uh, you know, you're talking world. about how we polarize around right and wrong. Exactly. As opposed to what the pattern is or what the meaning might be or what the menace might be. Yeah. 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 It took me a long time to heal from my own propensity to need something to be right or wrong. That was part of the driving energy of my personal psychology going into ethics. I need to know what's right or wrong because it's a life or death matter. If I get it wrong, I'm going to be bad. And if I'm bad, I'm bad. And I'm supposed to be good and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's classic um, psychopathic psychodynamics, you know? Yes. Polarizing. Um, yeah. Dichotomizing. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So I've healed a lot from that. I don't react so much. If someone has an opinion different from my own, I welcome it because it's like, cool. That's like, wow, I, there's probably something in there for me. You wouldn't believe it if there wasn't something true. So I can learn from that rather than thinking, oh my God, they're wrong and I have to correct them. Okay. So now I have stepped in this rabbit hole because one of my, <laughs> one of my, thoughts, one of these ideas that I'm working with and testing out is that our basic um, division that separates us mm -hmm. is about this question about are things relatively true or absolutely true? Mm. Are we, can we be certain? Is there a sense of, is there something that's actually true or is everything uh, shades of that? And that, that actual question there is the fundamental division i think between a lot of our polarities uh i think i think so <laughs> uh, yeah a lot of them for certain people like for well, other people those those polarities don't matter at all they're not they don't even blink i mean my daughter wouldn't blink about that you know what uh, would she so, say um she's she interestingly just as we've been talking i've been thinking about my daughter in the back of my head because i realized that I've always thought our brains worked very differently. And now I realize they're actually quite similar, just working in different realms, which is surprising and exciting for me to think about because she's an artist yeah. and, and she'll be having a conversation with you and the words are coming out of her mouth and your words are coming out of your mouth, but she's really not listening to either of it. She's actually figuring out how to draw your eyes. She's actually looking at the wrinkles in your forehead at this moment and, and thinking how interesting it would be to draw your face with a surprise reaction or, a, or an aha moment. And, and, and she's actually seeing the patterns of your face more so than the patterns of your verbiage. Um, and I realize that I am also, as you mentioned, 
a pattern recognition person, but I just I, I recognize patterns in words and in and in the, the body. Uh, and then I see those patterns and then I see them in my environment around me reiterated. And so I'm constantly going back and forth between my external and my internal worlds, recognizing the patterns between them and then questioning that I that I and laughing at the fact that I ever perceived any difference or separation between the two. Uh, and so what my per perceptions have led me to is to perceive the continuity of my body with the earth um, and and uh, and my daughter's pattern recognition, you know, has led her to become an amazing have an amazing capacity to put a line on a piece of paper or on someone's body. She's a tattoo artist now. Uh, mm. But it's just, I don't know, that Bodies. was a total tangent. But, uh. Well, any, what else, anything else you want to tell us about? I got, I mean, I basically got one more question myself. Yeah, what is it? What do you, what do you want people to know or discover or experience when they work with you? Mm. Oh, that's a nice question. I'm, it's my hope that folks will come away from our shared experience of studying the body and exploring uh, that inner world as somanots. It's my hope that they'll come away with a surprising respect and appreciation for the, the gift they are living and that they'll recognize that same gift to be operating in everyone around them and that the body will be rebranded as a result of that as a gift rather than a problem to be solved mm. and that that shared gift um that shared gift in the sense that the body isn't maybe necessarily just that thing on the table or the limits of their own skin um but that we're actually one body, one human body operating under the same sun and the same moon pulling at our tides and, and affecting our, that puts half of the planet to sleep and half of it to wake up because the earth is turning and that there's this one incredible organism that we're all participating in. And to me, it's the great democratizer of the planet and that all of the things over which we separate are are peripheral and superficial to the actual um, profound unity of our human body. And, uh, and so to hurt someone is to hurt yourself. And, and we can um, hopefully stop hurting ourselves. Mm -hmm. Amen. Thank you, Gil. <laughs> You're welcome. What do you uh, What do you want people to know about about your what you're working on? Where can they connect with you? I'm so easy to find. You can type my name wrong on Google, and they'll still send you to my website. <laughs> so, <laughs> GilAdley.com, where I have a whole bunch of free courses you can take. Basically, I put everything I've done that's worth anything up there for free. To watch. If you want it for credit, you got to pay me because I got to make a living. But if you just want to watch the stuff, you can watch it all for free. Um, and 
So you join the website, there's a little blue button in the middle and you say, I'll join. And you don't even have to let me email you back. <laughs> it's literally a free gift. I'm trying to educate. I want the world to, to experience itself differently. This is my little contribution. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not stomping on the bed for everybody to come to my courses or whatever. They're too expensive for most people and no one wants to travel anymore anyway. <laughs> so I am doing stuff online, which has been going really well. You mentioned it earlier, the live stream. Hmm. Uh, I have all kinds of plans for more educating that way. I'm happily associated with the Laboratory for Anatomical Research in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Please look them up and send them money. They're a nonprofit. They need money desperately. Basically, at the moment, you know, we're keeping each other afloat. We'll uh, put the link in the show notes as well as the link to your site and some of the things we've mentioned as well. Thank you. Thank you, Gil. Thanks for joining us. And uh, uh, keep up the good work. I look forward to the conversation and doing even more. Thank you. It's my great pleasure to see your smiling face and hear your voice. <laughs> Likewise. All right. So our outgoing sponsor today's episode was sponsored by Books of Discovery. Ah. Yeah. We're going to hear from Drew Beal. Take it away, Drew. Books of Discovery might be best known for producing Trail Guide to the Body, but we're also a whole lot more. We bring you the clinical learning tools you need to inform your intentional body work. Check out our kinesiology, pathology, and A&P texts. They not only build the foundation upon which great educators like Till and Whitney rely, but will also support you through your entire career. Books of Discovery is proud to support the thinking practitioner and are offering a 15% discount when a listener enters thinking at the booksofdiscovery.com checkout page. Enjoy the show. Thanks again to our sponsors and stop by our site for show notes, uh, transcripts, extras, thethinkingpractitioner.com or my site, advanced-trainings.com, Whitney's site, academyofclinicalmassage.com. Gil's site will be linked there as well. Questions, email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media. Follow us on Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen, and please tell a friend.